Today we will start reading in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. In the Church Bible, this is page 219. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you, and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zoph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start to worry about us. But the servant replied, Look in this town. There is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. We will now read 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 to 9. In the Church Bible, this is 202. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zalza on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, "The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, "What shall I do about my son?" Then you will go on from there until you have reached the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats and another three loaves of bread and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different man. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. We will now read 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 to 27, on page 220 of the Church Bible. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah, and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken lot. 
Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Samuel also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. We will now read 1 Samuel 12, verses 19 to 25, on page 222 of the Church Bible. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Eileen and Gabe. Um, did a great job reading. If you can pick up a Bible, um, we are, as you have seen, we're going to go through four chapters. And so it really would help you if you had the Bible at hand. Uh, but let's pray that God will speak to us through these words. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you that it's, even as it was written so long ago, that it's living and active, that it gives life to us. It changes our hearts. It makes us different people in you. And Lord, we pray that your life-giving words will go out and not return to you empty this morning. Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder what you do when somebody does something wrong against you. I wrote part of the sermon yesterday after Mary and I had a little argument in the morning. I threw a little tantrum like a little boy and I walked away from her. And that's what we do. When we do something bad, we actually say, well, um, fine, do it your way. I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm going to end this discussion and walk away. Israel sinned against God. Last week, we saw how they asked for a king. If you haven't listened to that sermon, do listen to it. That's a great sermon. And chapter 8, about chapter 8, they wanted, it, it wasn't that they wanted a king. That wasn't such a bad thing. God actually had planned to give them a king. The problem was that they rejected God as their king. They wanted to be like all other nations. 
Right? They wanted to be like other nations. When God had picked them, God has chosen them, and God set them apart to be holy, to be different from all other nations, so that all other nations would see who God is. But then they wanted to be just like any other nation. And not only that, they said that they wanted a king who could lead some, who could lead them out into the battle. Well, what did they see God doing in chapters five through seven? God, the ark of the Lord, went out, even without anybody else, single-handedly defeated the Philistines. And when they repented and returned to them, returned back to God, didn't God give them a decisive victory? God led them in battles. God led them in victory. As we heard last week, the problem wasn't that they were asking for a king. They were rejecting God as their king. What do you do when somebody wrongs you? In these chapters, we see God's reaction. We see what God does. Instead of rejection, we see God's gracious provision. Instead of leaving them to be on their own, to be alone, he chooses a king for them. A king like, uh, unlike other nations' kings. A king under God's authority. Because God is to have Israel as his own. They're going to be different. They're going to be ruled by him. What we see in these chapters is God's astonishing grace. So we see in chapter 9, we're introduced to this man named Saul in the first verse. His name, first of all, is Saul. Uh, if you uh, know any Hebrew, uh, you, you'll know that, uh, that the name uh, the, the shares the root um, to ask. It's, his name literally is asked for. They asked for a king, and God gives them a king named asked for. Well, is that a coincidence? Verse 2 describes him as handsome and young. And once again, the second word young could also be translated as chosen. God has chosen him for Israel. He literally stood above everybody else, stood out from everybody else. And this this tall, chosen, and handsome man is introduced to us through uh, a a very mundane, normal, ordinary event. He is looking for the lost donkeys of his father with the servant. And they wander all the way into Zuf, which is Samuel's territory. Saul's servants suggest that they pay him a visit. And on their way, chapter 9, verse 11, they find out that Samuel had just arrived in Zuf the day before and will offer a sacrifice in the high place, verse 12. But none of that is a coincidence. God had told Samuel the day before, as we find out in verse 15, the day before God had told Samuel that Saul was going to come that Samuel is to anoint him as a ruler over Israel. But would you believe it, though, if you went shopping to um, Jason's or something, and a very prominent person, a well-known person in the community, comes to you, a respected person, and tells you that you're going to be the CE, the next chief executive of Hong Kong, you'd be kind of incredulous, right? You wouldn't believe that person. And Saul was just out in a date looking for donkeys. And this person tells him that you are, he was going to be the king of Israel. He'd be a bit uh, doubtful. 
And we see more of God's grace because God then confirms to Saul that he is indeed going to be the king. And not only that, uh, the, the people of Israel, he then confirms to the people of Israel that this is God's will. So we see more of God's grace. Take a look at chapter 10 and verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. Verse 1, he is anointed, he is chosen to be the ruler over Israel. Verse 2, chapter 10, verse 2, God says he will give three signs. Verse 2 and on. 2, Saul will meet two men who will tell him that the donkeys have been found and that now the father is worried for him. And verses 3 to 4, he will then go to the great, great tree of Tabor in Bethel and meet men who are going to worship God there, carrying three goats, three loaves of bread, and a skin of wine. And Saul, they're going to offer him two loaves of bread. And he is to accept that. That's pretty specific. Yeah? Verse uh, and 3. In Gibeah, he will meet a procession of prophets. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. And he'll be a changed man. Those predictions, verse 9 tell us, happen exactly as predicted. Saul, God confirms for Saul that he is going to be the king. That he is God's chosen and then God introduces him to Israel. He publicly chooses him. So chapter 10, verse 17. Samuel summons all of Israel. And after giving them a tongue lashing about how sinful they are to ask for a king, he then selects a king by lot. And it must have been dramatic. The people were assembled. All of Israel was assembled by tribe by tribe. And he throws the lot, and the tribe of, uh, of Benjamin is chosen. And after that, uh, out of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, Matri's clan is chosen. And from all the, the men's names, Saul is chosen. But when the, main, the moment comes to announce Saul as the king, he's nowhere to be found. Because this man, he's fearful, he's timid, he doesn't know what to do, so he hid behind the supplies. He doesn't want to be introduced as the king. And when he's found, though, people shout in celebration. Verse 24, long live the king. Though some people, according to verse 27, grumble and say, how can this man save us? But God publicly shows, selects Saul to be the king over Israel. And not only that, to remove all doubts and to rescue his people, he then vindicates his choice by by using Saul to defeat and res- uh, defeat the enemies and rescue Israelites, we haven't had uh, we didn't have the time to read uh, chapter eleven. But uh, take a look at chapter eleven, verse one and on. We s- were introduced to this man named Nahash, who's the king over Ammonites. They're besieging the town of Jabesh Gilead. The people in the town give up almost immediately. They don't even put up a fight. The thing that they say, the verse 1, the first verse, they say, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. Before they asked for a king, and now they, they're basically saying, you be our king. Right? The first chance that somebody else comes, he, they go, you be our king, we'll be subject to you. Nahash says he wouldn't do it. He would only do it on the condition that he gouge out the right eye of every Israelite. The people of Jabesh ask for more time, seven extra days in verse 3. And you would think at this point, somebody would look for Saul, right? 
In chapter 10, he was just anointed the king over Israel, but nobody looks for Saul. The messengers are now sent out all over Israel to go with this news that they are under a siege, but nobody looks for Saul. Even the messengers in the town where, in the town of Gibeah where Saul is living, nobody is looking for Saul there. They didn't have any confidence in Saul. Saul only hears this news, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 5, because he asks, why are you crying? Why are people distraught? And when they explain what happened, something special happens. Verse 6, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. It's literally the Spirit of God rushed upon him. This timid man who once hid behind the supplies because he was so afraid now stands up. He cuts the pair of oxen that was there. He sends it out, sends them out into pieces to all the corners of Israel, summoning the people of Israel to fight this battle. 330,000 people respond, and he leads them into the battle. And the, the victory is decisive. It's quick. It's only described in one verse. It's described in only one verse, in verse 11. This was how God planned to rescue his people from the hands of the Ammonites. This was God's plan to confirm King. King Saul, introduce King Saul to all of Israel. After the victory, the whole Israel received Saul as their king. We hear in verse 12, chapter 11, verse 12, the people who offer to execute those who doubted Saul's ability. They, they say, we'll kill him. And Saul says, no, no, no. They shouldn't do that. And then Samuel renews Saul's kingship in Gilgal in verses 14 and 15. All this was according to God's plan. Yesterday afternoon, I felt bad the whole day, um, but the thing that I felt worst about wasn't actually the argument. It was actually that I stormed out. I, I, just, I just stormed out. Uh, there wasn't any chance for her to explain. There wasn't any chance for us to reconcile because I left. Friends, isn't it God's grace that God doesn't storm out? God doesn't leave us when we sin. Not only did he not leave us, leave them, he provided for them. He provided what they needed, a king, what they asked for. He provided a savior who would rescue them from their enemies. He raised up a ruler, and he confirmed the ruler. He planned every single part of, 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 of a step of his rescue. God is gracious. And this rescuer, this king, will be different from other kings because God is determined that Israel will not be like any other nation. He can't be. They can't be because they're God's chosen people. And I wonder if you notice the difference between Saul and all the other kings. Take a look if you go back to chapter 10. So there's a lot of flicking around, four chapters, difficult. Chapter 10, verse 1. See how Saul is introduced. Samuel said to him, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? What is Saul called there? They asked for a king. And Samuel anoints him a ruler. He's not called a king. 
In chapter 9, verse 16, that's what God told Samuel to do as well, to anoint him a ruler. ESV translates that word as prince. He's not quite the king. He is a ruler. And this ruler is under still authority of God. God will still remain the king over Israel. That's what God had planned. God had planned to give them the thing that they wanted, a king, somebody who would rule over and who would lead them, but not like other nations. God will still remain sovereign over his people. The first time that Saul is called a king is not by God or Samuel. It is by the people. In chapter 10, verse 25, when they hail, they say, long live the king after he is selected. And it's a kind of a, a, an astonishing thing that happens after that as well. Once again, t- take a look at chapter 10, verse 26. After he is proclaimed a king, what happens? Saul doesn't come up. Who comes up? It's Samuel. Samuel comes up. He then writes down the, the, the rights and duties of the king. He wrote it down and deposited it before the Lord, before Yahweh, before God. One of my favorite places um, to go when I lived in London was the British Library. It housed it houses extraordinary collection of different things. Uh, if you're a fan of Beatles, they have a napkin where they wrote the, uh, uh, the lyrics of yesterday. You can see the manuscripts for J- Jane Austen and C.S. Lewis. It's a great place to go. But these are some of the less uh, prized possessions that they have. One of its most important possessions is the Magna Carta, the Great Charter, which King John signed in June 15, 1215. It's a significant document because the nobles of England, this is a document when they effectively said no to the king. King king wanted something, they said no. They got together and made the king agree to limit his rule. Before, the king had sovereign, he had absolute power. After he signed the Magna Carta, he had to abide by his agreement. The things that he wrote, his rule is limited by those words. It was the beginning of democracy, and within a century, England would have a parliament, a representative government that would challenge the king's power. Friends, Israel's kingship was always different. Always different. Their power was limited from the very beginning. They didn't have absolute power over Israel. They were kings under God's authority. Samuel comes out right after the coronation. He writes down, this is what you are supposed to do. This is the rule by, by which you should, uh, you should rule over Israel. That's what Samuel does. And to emphasize this, look at what Samuel does in verse 25. This is the most anticlimactic coronation, right? Because the prophet comes up and he sets the conditions and then he instructs Israelites to go home. Right? The king, they all say, long live the king. The prophet comes up and says, everybody go home. And everybody does. Everybody goes home, including, you know what? Saul. Saul, the king of Israel, goes home. He listens to the prophet of God. You see what God is doing. God is saying, yes, you are a king. You are a ruler. But I am still sovereign. God's prophet rules because God rules over Israel. 
We see this also in the fact that Saul actually doesn't act as king until the Spirit of God comes upon him, right? When the Spirit of God rushes upon him, and then he is raised up, and he does his first kingly duty of leading people into the battle. It's the Spirit who directs him. I wonder if you can see God's tremendous grace in this as well. Israel wanted an idol. They wanted a king in the place of the king. They wanted to replace God with a human king. That's an idol. They thought that if they just had a king, all their national problems would be solved, that they would have somebody who would protect them and lead them. But it wasn't an idol. Of course, God knew a king like other nations, kings, actually would create more problems. That's what we heard in chapter 8. God warns them. He will take and take and take. He will take your uh, uh, donkeys and cattle. He'll take uh, your servants. He'll take and take and take. Because power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But God, but that doesn't mean the kings were bad, right? A king as God intended, a king who rules as God's prince, as God's ruler, under God's authority, actually will be a great king. A great thing to have because he will rule justly. He will lift up the poor and strike the the, the proud. He will bring God's justice and peace. He will rescue uh, them from God's enemies. And that's what God provides. As As an aside, this is how all good things that God provides are supposed to be used. Under the authority of God. Under God's rule, our money our time, our jobs, our family. You know, if by itself, if they become the ultimate thing, they'll take and take and take. They will ruin. But if they are under God's authority, if we treat our family as God would have us, if we treat money as God would have us use money, actually, these are all good things that can be properly used. So in God's grace... That's what God has done. What God provided was a king who would rule under God's rule. Let me make sure that we get this. Israel didn't deserve God's care. Israel didn't deserve God's grace, God's rescue. And Israelites come to realize this themselves in chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a trial. First on the dock is Samuel. Take a look at chapter 12, verse 3. This is what he says. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkeys have I taken? Who have I cheated? (laughs) And they reply in verse 4, he didn't do any of those things. He was a great ruler. Then Samuel puts God on the dock in verse 6. He lists all the things that God has done how God rescued them from Egypt and performed miracles. And when they forgot God and the rule, other rulers came and, uh, and oppressed them, how God had rescued them from the hands of the Philistines and other kings and how God rescued them. Verse 11, at the, 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 the second half of it, He delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. So God's ruler was good. God was a great king. But when they needed uh, when they were in need, he says, you didn't go to God. 
Verse 12, you wanted a human king, even though God had provided a ruler. God himself was a great king. Even though the Lord your God was your king, he says. And to confirm all this, Samuel in verse 18 summons thunder and rain in the midst of a harvest dry season. And this is what happened. Then, when this miracle happens, then they realize that they were guilty. Look at verse 19. They say to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added all, um, uh, to all the other sins the evil of asking for a king. They realize that they do not deserve God's mercy. And what Sam- Samuel says to them then is surprising. Verse 20. Do not be afraid. Samuel replied, You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord. You know why? You have done all this evil. The right thing to say is God will judge you. But he doesn't say that. He says, You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord. You know why? Because God did not turn away from them. And that's what we have seen, right? In chapters 9 through 11, God, God was gracious to them, how God provided for them. Lord has not turned away from you. The Lord has not abandoned you, despite all your stupidity and rebellion. That's grace. You've done evil, but God did not abandon you he, because he's committed to you. Why will, will he not reject them? Verse 22, for the sake of his great name. Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own for the sake of his great name. Name just isn't his reputation or something that he's called by. In Hebrew culture, name is his essence. Right? When God changes your name, you are changed in your essence. Your identity has been changed. Because of who he is, he will not abandon you. Who is he? Well, he's love. Because he's love. Unconditionally, God chose Abraham. God chose this nation. And through Christ, God chose all of us. Because he is love, he will not abandon us. Unfortunately, Mary and I argue more often than I'd like to. Most of it is my fault. If you ask Mary, Mary, why do you put up with him? She might, I hope, will say, well, he's not terrible all the time. But what if I were? What if I argued with her all the time, threw tantrums all the time, demanded uh, that I get my way all the time? What if I had an affair? What if I, uh, not just once, but multiple times, again and again and again, there's probably a limit to Mary's love for me. At some point, she would leave, and that's the right thing to do. But here's the thing. There isn't that sort of limit for God's love for us. Because the basis of God's love is not our lovability. It's not our behavior. It's basis in God's character, in God's essence, in God's name, in who he is. He is love, and he will love us because he chose us. That's the only sure foundation of that unconditional love. But as you read this text, you might say, well, that's wrong, because look at verse 14, chapter 12, verse 14. It's conditional. 
if you fear the Lord. The final verse in this chapter, in, in chapter uh, 12, verse 25, if you persist in doing evil, God will reject you. And you're right to raise this. Because in the Old Testament, you see this tension playing out. God's love, unconditional love. I will not reject you. We see it, uh, I'll not reject you because of my great name. But we see the other side. God will reject you if you persist in evil. God is both love and just, but actually God can't both love and forgive and be just at the same time and punish at the same time. So God sent Jesus. And God sent Jesus to the cross, the place where God's justice and love meet. There on the cross, we see how seriously God takes his justice. He will not let a wrong go because he is just. But he took that punishment for us. That's the place where we know God's unconditional love. He died for us as our substitute. What a wonderful grace. Friends, what do you do when you sin against God? We turn away from him, don't we? We feel ashamed. We feel dirty. We feel undeserving. We have done evil, and we will continue to do evil. Yet, do not turn away from the Lord. He is for you. He endured the cross for you. He has taken the judgment for you. He is working out his grace even when we rebel against him, even when we sin against him. He is that gracious. So as Samuel says, turn to him. Turn to him and serve the Lord with all of your heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it, re it reveals to us our sinfulness. It reveals to us our constant rebellion against you, how we should be ashamed, how we should be cut off from you. And yet in your love, you sent Jesus. And because of who you are and because of your great love in Christ, you will never abandon us. Lord, help us to know that love and help us to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray.